0: Well, one of the things that uh, Matt forgot to announce that today is actually uh, my birthday, and uh, yeah, the swag. I think particularly the meat (laughs) from. I knew y'all were gonna do that, thank you, thank you. But, yeah. so, so I'm Tim and I'm, I'm from the Netherlands. If this would have been, in, if we would have been in Holland, here's what would have happened. You would have come to my house and I would have served you some birthday cake and we would have sat around in a circle and that's because that's what Dutch people do. But before you sit down in the circle to eat one piece of birthday cake, the reason you only get one piece of birthday cake is because you're not special. And uh, because, you know, in Holland, we're, we're practically, even the atheists are, are Calvinists there. And one of, the things that, one of the things that would actually happen is if you were to walk in, uh, Matt would actually say to Dave, Matt, uh, Matt would say, Dave, congratulations with Tim's birthday. And then he would say, yes, congratulations with Tim's birthday as well. And the reason we do that, the reason we congratulate each other is because we don't want the birthday person to think that they're that unique or that special because you're not special. And, uh, and so I, I think we should maybe like turn to your neighbor and say, congratulations with Tim's birthday. <laughs> See, I feel like I'm at home. And then say, look at them and say, you're not special. Yeah. So I, I, I really hope this, uh, this time at Mockingbird uh, is truly uh, refreshing and that you have a renewed, a deep, personal knowledge of the grace of God as we are together. Uh, I noticed on the M Bird site this week the Jack Kerouac quote. He said, Nothing else in the world matters. But the kindness of God's grace, God's gift to suffering mortals. Nothing else matters but the kindness of God's grace to suffering mortals. And I, I just, I just want to pause for a moment. Can you just let the, the shock of that register that God loves sinners, that God actually declares Sinners righteous. I think that is when God is at his best. That is when we actually see that his glory shines the brightest. I love how Ashley Knoll, when he's commenting on the work of Thomas Cranmer, puts it this way. He's trying to capture the genius of Cranmer. And Knoll says, for Cranmer, the glory of God is to love the unworthy. That's his fundamental theological tenet. Now, I I don't want to presume uh, to speak for everyone here at Mockingbird, but I think I can speak for everyone and say that I think this is also the fundamental, fundamental theological tenet of Mockingbird, that the glory of God is to love the unworthy. That's when God is At his very best. That's when we see what his love is like. That's when his his kindness leads us to repentance. Now, uh, tonight and then tomorrow, I want to talk with you about a very specific way we can actually begin to experience this grace of God Uh, a way to make sense of it, a way that it comes home to us, uh, a a way for us to have a Deep and abiding personal knowledge of it. Because uh, don't you wonder sometimes, how is it actually happen that the grace of God becomes real to you? I'm fascinated by that. Now many of our, our Protestant traditions will quickly answer that question as to the means of the grace of God in two ways. They would say the the hearing and the preaching of the word of God is one major way that you experience the grace of God. And of course, through the sacraments, through the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and through baptism. But what I want to suggest to you in as impassioned way as I know how is uh, maybe even in a small way, maybe in an insignificant way, but I want to suggest to you that one of the primary means of God's grace is human friendship. And uh, the, the, the logic behind it is, is really, in some ways, really rather simple. Because if it is indeed the glory of God to love the unworthy, is it perhaps also not the glory of man to love the sinner? That is why, uh, I think think this is why I think Walker Percy is right when he says, love is the essence of the holiness of the church. So in other words, what I'm after is this. I'm interested in a creaturely replication of God's love for unworthy people. Because that's what God loves to do. That's what he does at his very best. And I think that creaturely replication of God's love for unworthy sinners often looks like friendship. And so in some small, sometimes maybe seemingly insignificant, broken, limited human way, there is still an incredibly significant creaturely replication of God's love. Now, let me just say a little bit on a personal note as to why I chose this theme for the evening. Uh, 2020 to 2021 has easily been the single most difficult year uh, of my life. And uh, through these last 12 months, I have experienced what I can only describe as the supernatural power of friendship and bonds that are not easily broken. Uh, In the midst of the global pandemic, I I lost my job. And this is a job and a ministry that I had that I thought, as, as far as I could see, I would be doing for the rest of my life. I didn't just lose it in some in a cost-cutting measure or in an organizational reorg, you know reorg of some kind, but frankly in, in the most degrading and humiliating way uh, possible. And so what's what's remarkable to me is that in the middle of this this train wreck and the disappointment and the trauma and the betrayal and admittedly at times the total despondency. I had several friends who wanted to have a, uh, a living rehearsal of Luke chapter 5, verse 18. You remember that story when the lame, uh, when the, the four friends bring the lame men to Jesus and they decided that I was the lame man and through their cares and their gifts and their hospitality and their support, they were the ones who consistently brought me to the feet of Jesus. And I, I could say without a shadow of a doubt, that the grace of the living Lord Jesus Christ has been mediated to me, mainly this year, certainly, through friends. Now, what's even more remarkable about that is that I started thinking about the, this immediate circle of friends that I have, and just the closest of them, a dozen or so, all of them in their own way, either recently or right now or uh, in the past have also suffered terrible devastation i just i just did a just a, a quick survey of some of these friends there's there's a there's a friend who has a daughter born uh, born with hydrocephalus there's a son who has recurring and seemingly unending suicidal ideation. There's the, the 18-year-old who's struggling to cope with his autism, and he jumps out of the car on a road trip with his grandparents through Ohio, and they decide that he's had enough screen time. He loses it, gets out of the car, runs away, and is missing for seven hours, and he, they, they actually finally find him uh, walking on train tracks because a police drone caught him, and I think of what it was like to get that call. You know, He's missing. Now there's the 17-year-old the whose face gets mashed in because he runs into the back of a parked minivan because he was on his phone and he cuts his nose off. And then there's the, the best friend's daughter with anorexia, and the one who's renouncing her faith. And there's the other one, and again, in a close, small circle of friends, the one who has bone cancer. And I could see in this this group of friends through these times together, through campfires, shared dinners, hospital visits, cookout, prayer vigils at night, uh, even in spite of all our frustrations with social distancing, uh, we have seen uh, the grace of God come to us in a very real way uh, through these friends. In fact, I, I think I believe I am seeing something like an answer to prayer of that, that beautiful collect for mission in the, in the book of Common Prayer. And it says this, and I feel like I, I, I see the answer to this prayer daily. Oh God, you manifest in your servants the signs of your presence. Send forth upon us the spirit of love that in companionship with one another, your abounding grace may increase among us through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the it's praying for the living grace of God to be manifested in the midst of our friendship through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is a, a creaturely replica, a human instance of a divine grace. So so tonight, I hope to to spur you on to be grateful for the friends that you have, intentionally committed to the ones that you do not have, and to pray that the living Lord will place the lonely at a family table. But in order to do that, I want to to tell you a story. You may actually already be familiar uh, with what I think is one of the most beautiful examples of friendship. Now, I imagine that many of you in this incredibly well-read audience uh, would know about one of the most famous literary group of friends called the Inklings. Just raise your hands even if you don't know what they are. This is, yes, there you Thank you. It is the the famous group of literary friends that included uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, and Charles Williams. But before the Inklings, there was another group, and you see some of their pictures here. In 1911, at the, uh, the King's, King Edwards School in Birmingham, England, a bunch of 19-year-olds got together and formed an incredibly close bond with each other. Chris Wiseman, Jeffrey Backsmith, Rob Gilson uh, was the son of King Edwards School head teacher, Kerry Gilson, and then Tolkien formed a bit of a secret society. And they would get together for talks to talk about writing. Uh, They made clandestine tea, which I read somewhere on a blog, and I don't even know what that is. Um, And they, they called themselves the TCBS, the Tea Club Barovian Society, which was derived from Barrow's tea shop of a local department store. And this TCBS, the Tea Club Barovian Society, they were inseparable. You can actually see in some of the pictures that often when they signed their signature to official documents, they actually signed with the acronym TCBS behind their name. Now, already at this very, uh, at this very young age, these four uh, would gather for conversation, for constructive criticism of their literary works, and many of them, actually each of them, uh, in their own right, became uh, great writers. I, I wish we could have seen them on September 25, 1915, which is when they met for the last time. Now, interestingly enough, of course, they did not know that they met for the last time. And I think that's actually very important for us to know. We never really know when this gathering of friends is for the last time. It's probably better that we don't know that. But that's when they got together one last time before they were separated by war. Now, all four members of the, uh, the Tea Club uh, enlisted and Tolkien served in the, the terrible Battle of the Somme uh, from July 1 to October 1916 as part of the 11th Battalion. Now, I, I think actually that the, as, a, as an aside, I think the carnage that Tolkien visited uh, or, or saw left an indelible mark on his life. And I actually, I wonder if the vivid descriptions of the battles of the people of Middle Earth in the Lord of the Rings is actually his way of telling the story and making sense of the bloodshed and the disorder and the mayhem and the evil that he witnessed, the heartbreaking loss that he saw in trench warfare of World War I. Now, providentially, Smith and Tolkien were, were both uh, posted at uh, Bousincourt in France, in France in the summer of 1916, and they actually had an opportunity to spend a lot of time uh, writing and talking together in relative safely. And then Ron Gilson, one of the four, was killed on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And Jeffrey Smith was so deeply moved that he actually said this in a letter. He said, I saw on the paper this morning that Rob has been killed. I am safe, but what does that matter? Then he says this, "Uh, do please stick to me, you and Christopher. I am very tired and frightfully depressed at this worst of news. Now one realizes in despair what the TCBS really was. Do, do please stick to me. I am tired. I am frightfully depressed. Do please stick to me. A, f- a few months later, uh, Jeffrey Smith was hit by a shrapnel in an attack position uh, in an attack on their position, and he survived that shell burst for three days, but then finally succumbed to his injuries and died uh, before his 23rd birthday. Uh, before Jeffrey Back Smith died, he wrote a poem because he was so deeply moved by the death of his friend. And, and this is, and I, I actually want to read it to you. It's, uh, the, the poem is, is entitled, uh, Let Us Tell Quiet Stories of Kind Eyes. Listen to this. Let us tell quiet stories of kind eyes. And placid brows where peace and learning sate. Of misty gardens under evening skies. Where four would walk of old. With steps sedate. Let's have no word of all the sweat and blood. Of all the noise and strife and dust and smoke. We who have seen death surging like a flood. Wave upon wave that leaped and raced and broke. Or let's sit silently, we three together, around a wide hearth fire that's glowing red, giving no thought to all the stormy weather that flies above the roof tree overhead. And he, the fourth, that lies all silently in some far distant and untended grave, Under the shadow of a shattered tree, he shall leave the company of the hapless brave and draw nigh unto us for memory's sake. Because a look, a word, a deed, a friend are bound with cords that never a man may break unto his heart forever until the end let us tell quiet stories of kind eyes i i can't stop thinking about that phrase let's let's tell quiet story of kind eyes. Because what did they long for more than anything? After the devastation of war, after the heartbreak, after the, the total depravity of humankind on display, they wanted more than anything to tell a quiet story with kind eyes. They wanted to be face-to-face with each other again. They wanted to see the way the li- their eyes would light up again the way they did when they would meet together in the TCBS. I was so struck by, by this particular phrase that I started reading some, some neuroscience and some, some brain science on eyes and faces and friendships and to my, to my great surprise certainly I'm certainly not no brain scientist I find out that they've actually written a tremendous amount about this so if you would just in, indulge me uh, this is actually amazing uh, when scientists study the brain and particularly how the brain functions in human relationships, they tell us exactly why we long to see quiet eyes. Every single one of us, from when we are an infant, are looking for one thing. We are looking for the kind eyes of our primary caregiver. So babies, certainly in the first 18 to 24 months, have really eyes for only one person. It's usually mama or the primary caregiver. And they are developing their first attachment. And they have one enduring and abiding question. Are you happy to see me? This is what they want to know. And the brain scientists show now that the sense of well-being that emerges from this predictable and reliable experience creates an attachment that uh, brain attached or brain scientist John Bowlby calls a secure base. And so these babies depend in a very real way on their growth, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually on the kind eyes of their caregivers. So before they can do anything, before they can perform, before they can make mommy or daddy proud, before they can be valedictorian of Tyler Middle School, they need to see a face of grace every single day. And then the study showed that uh, the brain actually grows according to this close attachment with a parent. In other words, the human brain grows when we see the face of grace, when we see kind eyes. In one of the experiments, they actually studied the gaze of a child when the mother's face was expressionless, and they actually found out that the child would begin to trace to try to repair or reconcile the relationship. Some of these neuroscientists are suggesting that this kind of attachment is the central organizing system for the human brain. In other words, we are attached... To what gives us life. We go where we are loved. So God has designed the human brain to respond and to grow and to flourish in relationship to the kind eyes of the others. In other words, the child is looking to see if they are the twinkle in someone's eye. Now, apparently this is true not only for infants, but also for adults. And apparently the human brain can actually detect, the right side of the brain can detect uh, in 40 milliseconds, walking into a room, whether or not the person is happy to see them. So in other words, you know, before you know that you know whether or not someone is actually eager to have you there, that they're super excited. So it's, it's pre-rational. It's not even, you're not even conscious of it yet. So you've not even, you've literally not wrapped your brain around it yet, but you already know whether or not someone is excited to see you. And then the brain then apparently uh, releases the moment that they see the eyes of grace Uh, they begin to secrete dopamine, the neurotransmitter. In other words, you feel a sense of euphoria. You feel this sense of high. So in other words, the more that we interact with one another, the more that we see the face of grace, the attachment center in your brain is actually firing on all cylinders. That means that from the moment you are born, you are designed biologically, structurally, ontologically to experience the face of grace in another. Human beings are designed to live on grace. And uh, even the brain scientists are telling that shared joy in one another is the single richest and most indispensable experience a human being can have. So the greatest joy you can have is the joy in the close attachment with another. And the greatest suffering and pain you will experience is a relational pain, a pain that happens from betrayal. Um, uh, You know, I know many of our services uh, start out uh, the very beginning of the service by saying, uh, the Lord be with you, and you respond with, I, I think what we probably should say is, if we're really honest, is, I'm super glad to see you. And you respond with, you. Okay, let's try that again. I'm super glad to see you. To see you. Okay, turn to your neighbor saying, I'm, you. I'm super glad to see you. But you're not special. No. So I, I, I actually, I, I do actually, in all seriousness, wonder if, if Sam and Frodo's relationship is actually a replica of the TCBS friendship. Um, here is one of the things that we, we read in the Lord of the Rings. I'm glad you're here with me here at the end of all things, Sam. I'm, I'm glad, I'm super glad to see you. Stick with me. Uh, last night, uh, David uh, mentioned the uh, coach Mosley of Last Chance U, and I—I I, really—I thought of the exact same comment that he made. Because if you—and this would be interesting to talk to him about tomorrow—because if you look at the interaction between the coach and these players, they walk in the room, and regardless of what they have done, he actually communicates to them. I'm super glad to see you. And, I, and again, I love this quote. They need love the most when they deserve it the least. So in that, in that story, I think in their lives, I'm convinced more than, that, than ever that relational joy shared among brothers and sisters and friends actually enables us to suffer better because God actually uses that as a means of grace. Because there's someone who's interested in knowing me, there's someone who's glad to see me um, i I think one of the let, let me let me show you one other uh, part of this this poem and it, this was pointed out to me by a wartime poetry blogger Connie Rutzik. Uh, she says that the the poem attempts in some ways to be a little escapist because they're saying oh if if only." Uh, we could not talk about all the the bloodshed and the trauma of war, so in some ways, the poem attends no matter how briefly, to deny the present reality it It begs for the mercy of oblivion as it attempts to block out the surrounding blood, sweat, noise, and grime. And the poem knows that that death is a is a ravaging flood. Uh, that cannot be turned back, and, and it outraces us, and it outpaces us, and one of the, one of the phrases uh, that, I, that I love is, and this is, I think, incredibly powerful, is in the, in the poem, it says, under the shadow of a shattered tree, there they sit all silently, and there is one other friend in some far distant unintended grave, uh, untended grave. And what sh- the poem is essentially saying, right now, there used to be four of us, but there, uh, now there's only three of us. And if only we could go back to that time where we would be together. Is I think what happens, I think my bedonkadonk's too big. That's actually creating problems. Let's try that. Sorry about that. Um so, 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 so in other words, there used to be four, now there's only three left, and they are wistfully wondering if the fourth could be returned to them, if they could one day be together again. Uh, this is actually is also, it's reminiscent uh, to me of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in, in Life Together. Here's, here's how Bonhoeffer puts it. He says, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Don't don't we know that in COVID? And this is why it is so good to be together in person in Tyler, because it is your... Yes. Because it is your physical presence, not your virtual presence, although I'm super glad that you all are watching. Hi, mom. Um, But it is the physical presence of other believers. And then he expands on that. He says it's easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day could be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. So in in the middle of war, in the middle of COVID, there is no greater consolation than the mutual affection of good friends and good company. One of the, uh, one of the, the things that Jeffrey Back Smith wrote was this. And I found this, this so moving. He says that the counsel was, as you know, followed in my own case with my finding a voice for all kinds of pent-up things. In other words, being together with these four guys stirred creativity within me. And he, goes, he says, I have, I have always laid that to the credit of the inspiration for even a few hours that the four always brought to all of us. In other words, you cannot be fully who you are called to be without the grace of God mediated through one of your close friends. The, uh, the title of my, my talk is is not easily broken. And it is actually taken from one of the, the verses in this, this poem. It's in the fourth, the fourth stanza. They imagine that Gilson, who has just died, would come back. And, and here's, here's, here's how the whole stanza goes. And draw nigh unto us for memory's sake, because we miss you. We want you to, to join us again at this campfire. Because a look, a word, a deed, a friend are bound with cords that never a man may break, unto his heart forever, until the end. So they see that there's actually something eternal about this friendship. There is something eschatological about this friendship that knows that deep down, no matter what has happened, no matter what comes in between us, that God has joined us together and that we are part of an eternal fellowship, And by the grace of God, we will be part of that true body, that mystical body, not just now, but by his grace, we'll be members of that forever. I love how he puts it. He says, uh, Smith or Gilson says, at times like this, when I'm alive, it's so obvious that the TCBS is one of the deepest things in my life. And I can hardly understand how I can be content to let slip so many opportunities. I want, to, I, want to show you, I want to show you a brief video clip here of, of an example of the supernatural power of friendship, a bond that is not easily broken. I heard about these two friends who have this strange ritual. They're both singers, and they're from Nashville. And uh, Mark, I think if, we can, if you can run that, uh, that clip, I find this one of the most moving examples of, of friendship. Let's take a look.
1: You want to see what true friendship looks like? CBS's Steve Hartman takes us to Nashville for tonight's On the Road. Every week, Andy Gullihorn goes for a walk. And every week, about a mile and a half away, his friend Gabe Scott does the same thing at the same time. They walk toward each other, and when they meet, it's the weirdest thing. You see that? Clap, snap, high five. Then, often, they simply walk home. The whole exercise, their way of saying hi. You realize people have telephones and you can just call your buddy. You're right, we should have been doing that this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Pick up the phone is great, but I've got a friend who literally will walk through the rain and the snow just to give me a high five. And I wish everybody could feel that feeling. Andy and Gabe are musicians in Nashville. They met at a concert in 2000 and became friends. They got together on occasion, but not as often as they would have liked. So they invented this bit of silliness seven years ago as a way of guaranteeing they see each other at least once a week. So this is the high five journal. Andy has a log of every encounter, including the one that was nearly their last. It was high five number 312. Gabe was hospitalized with a severe form of encephalitis. It caused his brain to swell and robbed him of his past. I pretty much forgot my life. Your whole life? Yeah. And that's when his buddy Andy, now a virtual stranger, came to visit. Said, well, Gabe, this is gonna sound really weird, but I need you to do something for me. Give me a high five. And he was like, okay.
0: When the moment happened, my body just did what it's been doing for years.
1: (laughs) Clap, snap, high five. That was in September. Since then, a lot of his memories have returned but few more cherished than this silly tradition, which doesn't seem quite so silly anymore. It's
0: really special to have something, have a memory of something. <laughs> to have something that's this consistent in my life, that means this much.
1: Andy even wrote a song about their ritual. So take a walk with me on Monday morning. It's a reminder that going out of your way for someone is still the straightest path to an everlasting friendship. No when small things matter. really no small thing. Steve Hartman, CBS News on the road. That's something.
0: So a, a shameless plug for my workshop tomorrow morning on the supernatural power of ritual and why having, you know, high five number 352 is so important. Uh, Andy Gullihorn wrote another song, and I want you to listen to these lyrics. Here's what he said. Uh, "They They can take any name that I've made for myself. They can take any pride that I've got as well. There are some things that I can't afford to lose. I could be nobody as long as I'm somebody to you. Yeah, I could keep chasing the rabbit out front, but you know that's a race I don't care to run. So I lay down any dreams of vain success. Oh, I'd rather run to you instead. So let's get face to face and eye to eye. I want these words, I say, to echo true inside. I could hold the world in my hands. I could let it slip right through. I could be nobody as long as I'm someone to you. Psalm 68 says that the Almighty... Uh, places the lonely in families. Uh, It is my my hope and prayer uh, that you have uh, at least one friend who when they see you, their eyes light up and they are super delighted to see you. And it is also my prayer that if if you do not have that, that even tonight here at Mockingbird Tyler, uh, around the taco truck, around our, you know, the music that we have together and tomorrow, that you will begin to experience the face of grace in another. Because in a divided world, in a COVID world, in a world that is so angry all the time, raging all the time, I know nothing that can be more powerful than that the people who have been transformed by the power of grace would become the face of grace to someone else. And there is, I believe, a supernatural power in the way that God can use you, who knows, particularly because of Mockingbird's insistent and never-ending and relentless emphasis that you're not special, that God can use that so that the people around you will know, oh, this is what it's like to have a person who has been moved by a God who is best when he loves the unworthy. I believe that being the face of grace is our human superpower. And it is my hope and prayer that through Mockingbird, many people will see and experience and have a deep personal knowledge that you're super glad to see them. Thanks so much.